Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the LSE. If you're visiting and if you're from the LSE, I'm delighted you're all here. My name is Andres Velasco. I'm the Dean of the School of Public Policy, and I am very pleased and honored to be chairing this session. Um, the ones who know about European politics are over there. Um, I will pretend no knowledge, but I will um, ask a question or two just to keep myself amused. We are uh, very, very lucky tonight. Uh, we have three people with us who know a great deal um, about politics in the UK and in the rest of Europe. Uh, I'll introduce them from this side uh, onto that one. Professor Matthew Goodwin, Professor of Politics at the University of Kent and the author of course, and a, of a widely read and influential book on nationalism and populism, a book that even I have read. Um, reads very well, I should say. Um, there's Sarah Hoboat from the LSE, who's a professor of um, government and uh, the holder of the Sutherland Chair in European Politics, am I right? And uh, Sarah Heyman, who's an associate professor at the European Institute here at, uh, at the LSE. Um, I am told that when this um, event was organized a few weeks back, it was meant to be an event about the politics of the rest of Europe, because the United Kingdom, of course, was not meant to take place in these elections. Um, so uh, politics is uh, wonderful for many reasons, one of which is it is always uh, throwing up surprises. And um, we have uh, an even more fascinating subject, because we have a European election in which the United Kingdom uh, contrary to many expectations, is in fact taking place. So we'll be talking a little bit about uh, the UK, we will be talking a little bit about Europe. As a non-European, as a non-expert, for me the big question is how much of a reconfiguration of party alignments, party allegiances, and the party system are we going to get uh, coming out of this election? Um, you know, European politics for a very long time, in most of the major countries at least, has had 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 fairly stable alignments with, you know, two or three major parties holding sway. And uh, if you believe the polls, of course, this is looking as though it is going to change a great deal. So I think that's one of the big questions um, uh, in the air. A related question, of course, which is the same question but phrased in a more uh, provocative and less academic way, might be, are we going to see an explosion of populism in these elections? Um, and of course, it is um, you know, up to anybody's uh, preferences exactly what do we mean by populism, and is it a good thing or a bad thing? And a third question might be, among many, many other questions, you know, how good a predictor are these European elections of other elections coming down the pike in which national parliaments uh, will be configured. Uh, I am told by the experts that typically these are not good predictors, so we might get one set of results here and perhaps a different set of results down the road, but so many things are changing that perhaps previous experience on the subject may, again, may not be a very good predictor of what is going to come. So without further ado, uh, let us go into the uh, meaty portions of the uh, event. We're going to have initial presentations of about 10, 12 uh, minutes by each one of the panelists, and then we will try to have as informal and informative a discussion as possible. Uh, you've all agreed that um, for reasons uh, uh, unbeknownst to me, we're going to start with the UK, um, and so we will give Matt the floor for about 12 minutes, uh, and then we will move on to uh, Sarah Hobart and Sarah Heyman. Matthew, floor is yours. 
Well, thank you very much. Um, and thanks for the kind words about my book. My mother feels exactly the same way. Um, she's bought a copy for all of the neighbors. Um, so someone out there is buying it. Um, OK, so a few observations about the UK within the context of the European Parliament elections. So I think one of the interesting things about British politics at the moment, one of the, the ironies of our politics um, is that ever since voting for Brexit, British politics has become more European. And what I mean by that is if you look at where we are in the opinion polls and you look at what's going to happen next week, we are, I think, going to see the continued and quite dramatic fragmentation of our party system. Uh, so if you look even at the current polls uh, for the Westminster, uh, next Westminster election, uh, the two main parties combined, the two big parties, Labour and the Conservatives, are on only 52% of the vote, which is down nearly 30 points on their combined vote share in 2017. Uh, the Brexit Party, founded only in the first week of April, uh, depending on which poll you like, is on between 16 and 20%. The Lib Dems are doing very well, 15, 16%. The Greens are doing very well, 8 or 9%. Change UK, not doing so well. And I think what's interesting about that fragmentation is that it's actually going to have quite a profound impact upon the next few years uh, in Britain. I think the Brexit Party uh, will probably win the European Parliament elections next week. And it will do so by mainly drawing votes from disillusioned Eurosceptics. So if you look in the crosstabs, about 55 to 60% of Britain's leavers say they're going to vote for the Brexit Party. About 50 to 60% of 2017 Conservatives say they're going to vote for the Brexit Party. And there's a smaller group of sort of disillusioned Labour leavers, and then there's another small group of people that say they haven't voted at previous elections. But that coalition, which is remarkably similar to the UKIP uh, coalition for obvious reasons, I think actually will allow Nigel Farage uh, to emerge as the winner of the elections. And that, I think, will have a couple of consequences on our politics. The first is that it's immediate, in the immediate short term, it's going to pile pressure on Prime Minister May to resign. Uh, and looking at, at Twitter this afternoon, she's already confirmed that she'll go if she loses uh, the next vote on her withdrawal deal. So true to form, she's just, she um, has just incentivized everybody uh, in Parliament <laughs> not to vote for her deal. Um, <laughs> it's a rem remarkable... Um, um, judgment on display. Um, but I think, I think beyond that, it's going to increase the probability that the next leader of the Conservative Party will be a hard lever, but also that the Conservative Party leadership candidates will turn up the volume on the hard Brexit narrative. And you can already see that in the statements of Jeremy Hunt and Sajid Javid and... Uh, Penny Mordaunt and others, that I think the fear, the Farage fear, uh, will increase the uh, uh, volume around hard Brexit. Mm -hmm. 
I think it's also what happens next week is also going to increase fear within our financial uh, uh, services uh, community. Even if a form of Brexit is delivered, I think the probability of that Brexit deal being soft is now very high. I still think a no deal is not not very likely for reasons that we can come back and talk, talk about. But even then, I think Nigel Farage and the Brexit Party will probably hold somewhere in the region of 7 to 15% of the vote in Westminster polling. And that will matter because it will increase the likelihood of Labour emerging as the largest party at the next election. It will increase the likelihood of Prime Minister Jeremy Corbyn at the next election. And it will, I think, generate a great deal of unease within business uh, and the financial uh, services community uh, about the broader direction of the country. In fact, as somebody said to me a few weeks ago, there's a two-punch combination for Britain, which is a, a very messy Brexit deal that doesn't satisfy anybody, followed by a Labour government that will alarm uh, business. Now, irrespective of your politics, I think we can all pick holes with that analysis. But the, the growing prospect of a, of a radical Labour government, I think, will, will start to produce uh, broader effects. And I think also, in general terms, the fragmentation that we see next week will ref be reflected across Europe. And I know that Sarah is going to, to mention this. But one of the one of the things that I think the UK is going to do next week is going to increasingly catch up with many other party systems and increasingly that traditional Westminster model of British politics of having a very strong unitary state and a very strong and reliable two-party system will increasingly be challenged and the, the outcome of the 2017 general election will increasingly be seen as something of an outlier. It's very hard to see how the two main parties get back into a position of dominance from here. In fact, I'm very gloomy about the Conservative Party's prospects for the simple reason being that, unlike 2015, when they had a similar challenge from UKIP, don't lose sight of one very important fact, that Linton Crosby was able to navigate that challenge from UKIP by converting lots of Liberal Democrat seats into Conservative seats. And those Liberal Democrat seats are not there this time around. And if anything, those Liberal Democrat seats are going to go back to being Liberal Democrat seats which is going to leave the Conservative Party very little territory as Labour continue to move through London and the South East and the university towns. So if indeed we see Theresa May resigning in the shadow of these European elections, I think there is a massive intray of challenges and tasks facing whoever succeeds her. And if indeed the party falls below 10%, that will be its worst result in its entire electoral history. And I think there's also a very good prospect that the two main parties themselves will fall below uh, a combined 37, 38% of the vote, which would be their lowest combined vote share in our entire electoral history. I think sometimes when you're living amid dramatic political change, you lose sight of how significant it is. And there is a temptation to say these are only European Parliament elections. This is a unique context with Brexit. But the one thing that I would urge you to remember next week is that everything that we're seeing, both in terms of the vote for Brexit, in terms of the fragmentation of our party system, that these things have been baked in for a long while, that they are anchored in deep-rooted, long-term structural changes in our society and in our politics. Uh, 
many of which we talk about uh, in our book, which is available on Amazon for £6.50, um, which is of remarkable value. Um, so I don't think we'll see a conclusion to our Brexit debate. I think, if anything, what we see next week will exacerbate those divides that Sarah and others have, have pointed to, that we are now increasingly a nation that defines ourselves by our Brexit identity as much as defining ourselves by our party political identity. And I think that's going to make British politics increasingly unpredictable and actually increasingly volatile as fewer and fewer voters feel aligned to the main parties. It might be that we are now entering into a political world where we need to get used to the new political entrepreneurs and the new challenges, from Nigel Farage to Caroline Lucas, from Chuka Ramuna to a suddenly revitalized Vince Cable. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I'll leave it there and we can go into some discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for that. That was endlessly fascinating. And I would, you know, I think we could all probably go on and just uh, talk about Brexit all evening because um, it just really is uh, interesting for those of us fascinated by politics. But uh, let me just, uh, before doing so, let's talk a bit about what is going to happen in uh, the rest of Europe because, of course, there are also elections in 27 other countries and Brexit is not really a particularly important issue uh, in those countries. And first, I just want us to remind ourselves about what European Parliament elections normally look like. Because uh, while, as Matt rightly said, fragmentation is becoming more and more of an issue across the continent, um, as it is in the UK, uh, really, European Parliament elections have always been a, a sort of slightly different affair, where challenger parties, niche parties, parties on the fringes did better. And that's because most voters don't care terribly about what happened in European Parliament elections. So it's seen as a sort of free vote. They behave differently than they do in national elections because it's not about the election of the government. So what does that mean? It means most of them, they don't turn out. Uh, we know last time uh, turnout was as low as 43% across uh, EU28. It also means that they like to use it as an opportunity, as the picture here uh, alludes to, as punishing whoever is in power. So a big structuring factor in European Parliament election is the electoral cycle. If the national government is somehow in the, in the midterms and not in a honeymoon period, uh, they will tend to do fairly poorly in European Parliament elections. And it also means that voters often use it as an opportunity to vote for more for parties that are more on the ideological extremes, single-issue parties, and particularly Eurosceptic parties have tended to do well. So that's the kind of general trend. So we're going to see this uh, when we get the results at uh, 10 p.m. Uh, on Sunday. And just to remind ourselves that that's really been the case um, also in past European Parliament elections. But there's also another thing that matters, that is that these are inherently very national elections. So although we can look at European trends, uh, they are also structured by whatever national debate is going on and where the government is in that debate and what are the main opposition parties and so on. So in particular here is where we are in the national electoral cycle. If you're coming up to an election, it tends to be the parties that will do well in that general election that are doing well. But if you're in the middle of an electoral cycle, it's really uh, the sanctioning, the punishment of the government that voters use these elections to express. So just to sort of a, a little plot to show some data for that, 
what we see is generally um, what we have here in this horizontal axis is votes here in the preceding national parliamentary election and uh, on this uh, vertical axis uh, what we have is their gains or their losses in the European Parliament election. And there's this downward slope just suggests that if you're in government, you tend to do worse. Theresa May will really feel that uh, uh, on, on, on Thursday and on, on Sunday when we, when we know. Uh, if you're in opposition, you also will do a bit, uh, um, if you're one of the mainstream opposition parties, you also tend to do a little worse because it's really challenger parties. And particularly Eurosceptic parties tend to do better. But also, uh, as we'll see, other challenges such as green parties and radical left-wing parties. So what are the predictions just for 2019? Um, I, I don't know if you can see them well, but I just put up two different predictions here, and really they're in line with what Matt already alluded to, this sort of squeezing of the centre. So what we've seen in European Parliament elections since the very first in uh, in 1997, is that the two major party groups, the centre-right EPP, the European People's Party, and the centre-left, the Social Democrats, have held a majority together. So there's been a kind of grand coalition. And what uh, the polls suggest now is that they will lose their overall majority. Um, and that's uh, in particular the EPP, but also the Social Democrats will do uh, worse in these elections. And of course... One of the reasons for that is that they tend to be in government across Europe, and because they're in government, they will be punished in these elections, and that will mean that these groups are smaller. Uh, another mainstream pro-European group that looks like it'll do better, however, are the liberals. So again, here there's a kind of uh, a similar trend to what we see in, um, in Britain, but some of that is also driven by, some of these numbers are driven by the fact that they think that uh, they're, they're lumping in Macron's uh, en masse together with these figures for, uh, for Aldi. Um, so, so they are on the up. And as we can see, the blue groups here are what, uh, in Matt's book, which you heard about, uh, is uh, the uh, national populists. So, um, and they look like uh, they will do um, quite a bit better. They already did well last time, although the ECR, which is where the Tories are, that are sort of Eurosceptic conservatives, uh, will do worse, and that's um, partly as a result of the Tories doing worse. Uh, but also the Greens are also looking like they'll do better, and there's no significant losses for the far right. So it's really the kind of fragmentation and polarization we talked about. But importantly, we still see um, a sort of pro-European um, majority, um, but it means that the socialist and the Christian Democrats will have to, vote, to work together with the Liberals and maybe also with the Greens to be able to have a legislative majority. And I'm sure Sarah will, will talk more about uh, what implication that is. So, so the things to look out for uh, on Sunday is really what happens to the major party groups. You know, just how weak will they become? They look like they will uh, lose their majority. Also, what is the balance of power between them? So far, uh, in the last election in particular, and the one before that, the EPP was the largest group. And that means you have more power over top jobs, you have more powers over the legislative agenda and so on. They look like they'll remain this top job, but if they're seriously weakened relative to the Social Democrats, that could matter. The radical right-wing populists, they will perform well. We expect that, but just how well will they perform? So far, a lot of the increase in the radical right-wing group is really driven by uh, Salvini's sort of uh, amazing uh, polling performances. That's really what drives it. In other countries, in fact, the radical right is doing worse. So it's not a uniform trend across Europe that everywhere the radical right performs better than in previous elections. 
and look at both ends of this spectrum. It's not just on the radical right, it's also the Greens and the Liberals that look like they'll pick up votes. And as I said, I still think there will be a sizable pro-EU majority in Parliament, but it will be one that's more fragmented than before. It will be harder to form uh, a stable coalition. Another thing to just think about when we look at these numbers is we, we, we have them in these sort of nice colored groups and we think about them a bit like political parties. But they're not exactly like political parties. They're more fragmented than that and some of them are more fragmented than others. And research by VoteWatch, which uh, Sarah helped found, uh, has shown that if you look at, at party cohesion within the group, that is far greater within the mainstream center-left and center-right groups than on the fringes. And in particular, the national populist groups tend to not really vote very much together. It's only about sort of half the votes where they can figure out uh, you know, how to vote together. And that means that they're generally weaker than their size suggests when it comes to actually influencing the legislative agenda. So just to lead over to, to what Sarah is also going to talk about, why does this matter, uh, these European Parliament elections? It seems that voters use them as a kind of way of expressing you know, their preferences, but also their dissatisfaction and use them as a protest vote. But of course, they are also um, important in a number of ways for what happens in Europe. They matter, of course, for the composition of the parliament that is the co-legislator in Europe, but they also matter for other top jobs. Um, you might recall or you might not, if you recall this, you're really a part of a very exclusive, well-informed elite. But last time in 2014, for the first time, we had something called Spitzenkandidaten. I think only about less than 10% of British voters uh, found out what it was, so that's why I say if you, if you know what they are, you're really uh, very well informed. But they were lead candidates for the major parties, and the idea was that by voting for a party, you would also be voting for uh, who would be the next commission president. So Juncker was the lead candidate for the Christian Democrats for the EPP, and he was elected on that agenda. This time it's a bit up in the air whether or not one of the lead candidates, so this time for the EPP, it's, does anyone know? Yeah, oh, see, very well informed, that's right, Manfred Weber, or you know, Franz Timmermans for the Social uh, Democrats. Is it going to be one of them, or is the council going to come up with some other candidate? Um, so, so that's up in the air. Um, partly that's up in the air because if the groups are smaller, if they're weakened, they will have less of a mandate to sort of push through with the council to say this is really, uh, this is really the democratic choice of voters. It also matters, of course, because we have very polar visions for the future of Europe in these, can in these elections. So I put up these pictures. You can guess who is the pro-European with the big star behind him. Macron doing his big vision for Europe. He was elected in France on a very explicitly pro-European agenda, and he wants to push that forward also as part of his national agenda. But we have two other heads of government, uh, Salvini, who's doing incredibly well in Italy, and Orban uh, in Hungary, who's also doing very well, who have very different visions for Europe, much more of a Europe of the nation, much more Eurosceptic and nationalist, although not anti-European in the sense that they want to take their countries out of the EU. And finally, these elections can also matter in terms of having an impact domestically. So of course, there's not a direct translation between how people vote in national elections and how people vote in European Parliament elections, 
but they can often provide a launch pad for a national election. So, for example, the Brexit Party, they now have an opportunity to show how well they do, and that will serve them well uh, in the next general election in the UK, even if they are unlikely to do as well as they do, uh, on, as we expect they do on Thursday. So I'll leave it there and turn over to Sarah, who will talk more about the EU. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. So I'll actually pick up exactly where Sarah um, ended because I'll uh, elaborate on a few of these points and also look ahead for um, what is ahead for the EU uh, as a continent and the domestic politics that we uh, will see played out after these elections uh, in quite a few member states having general elections coming up. But also, of course, what's on the agenda for the EU itself and what happens um, uh, after the, the uh, European Parliament's elections are, uh, are over and done with. So let's remind ourselves, apart from um, uh, what has been mentioned already, the elections are important uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, today, and this is even a recent uh, increase in the European Parliament's powers after the Lisbon Treaty in 2009, today the European Parliament is on equal footing with governments on approximately 85% of policies that come out from the EU. So that's really quite significant to uh, previous decades where we saw that the European Parliament in many areas only had a consultative role, but today it really decides on policies that have great importance for um, Europeans. And many people say that if you have an, a prominent position as an MEP in the European Parliament, you're more likely to have real powers and have real influence on policies that you would have even on a front bench in national parliaments. Um, the, European, uh, the European Parliament, as I will elaborate a little bit on with the appointments of the top jobs, also has a say on that. It's more of a veto power perhaps than a agenda setting power, uh, which the Spitzen candidate process, of course, has tried to um, establish. Um, but also the European Parliament uh, has some powers of the purse. It is uh, now with uh, a, a legislative power in deciding on the EU's annual budgets, and it's doing that quite forcibly. Uh, and it has veto powers. It has to agree to the long-term strategic annual spending of the EU. Uh, and this is, of course, of huge political significance. Uh, and then not um, an unimportant point is that a lot of the uh, issues that come from EU level are usually only reaching national uh, domestic debates through the media or through the national parliaments because of actions taken in the European Parliament and the party groups giving prominence to decisions made by the EU governments. So it also has this, of course, very important parliamentary role of deliberation and information sharing uh, to its citizens. Um, but beyond that, you know, beyond its institutional powers, um, the implications of this European Parliament election will uh, have an impact on uh, the other EU institutions and, as Sarah already alluded to, potentially to domestic politics. Um, and that's what I wanted to, to cover here. So um, in terms of the projections for the seats, I want to 
just emphasize before we sort of establish that this is the picture that is likely to emerge. This is based on these projections that we see, and they vary slightly. These are based on opinion polls. We need to take them with a pinch of salt, of course, and also a big issue, a big unknown here, is the voter turnout in uh, each of the uh, member states. And um, one of the reasons why voter turnout in the European Parliament elections is also a um, uh, a different um, animal than compared to the general elections is that in many countries you have different rules, different electoral rules for the appointment of the MEPs than you have in your own domestic uh, pol uh, politics. So this, this really matters and we need to think about um, the composition of the European Parliament also with respect to whether the voter turnout will go significantly up now that Europe in most countries is really on the political agenda, or if people feel that apprehension is, is still uh, real, it's not for their own executives that they're turning out to vote. Uh, but that said, as Sarah already um, uh, mentioned, there will be um, quite some changes uh, uh, this time, not just in the UK, as Matt highlighted, but across Europe. And I think that there are two main stories or points I think we should keep an eye on. One is, of course, that some of the um, parties on the fringes might, might gain, gain seats, but they are usually, as Sarah mentioned, um, finding it difficult to vote coherently and to have an actual influence on policies. But also, they don't always or very often they actually don't turn out to vote at all. Uh, they might come into the European Parliament with a different agenda than necessarily having uh, and taking part in legislative activities. And that's why we should think, you know, it's important to take um, note of these developments, but perhaps it will not manifest itself in, it, in, the, in the political outcomes uh, subsequently. But a key story once that has been said, is that we need to um, see what developments the EPP group will go through because that's really where there might be significant changes. The EPP group has been extremely successful both within the European Parliament but also across to the other EU institutions to form this party family, if you want, which um, dominates all uh, politics at all levels in the EU. Um, before heads of governments meet at European summits, the EPP party group organizes a, a sort of a coordination between its uh, leaders to make sure that they are all um, more or less on the same page with key issues um, that are coming up for the leaders to decide on. Um, with that group, perhaps... Um, being challenged in, uh, after this election in terms of its dominance, it's not for sure that it can uh, muster a, a majority um, even with the older group. It will be really key to see what consequences and what developments we will, we will come subsequently. Uh, Orban has said that he might take his uh, Fidesz uh, uh, representatives out of the group, which would be a significant uh, loss of seats as well. And the EPP group will find it difficult, even if it maintains a majority, but a much smaller uh, majority of, the, of its uh, members, it will find it difficult to dominate the agenda in the way that it has done um, until now. 
Another issue that is really important to keep an, uh, uh, an eye on is that with the expansion of the older group and with the um, Macron's uh, uh, members joining that group, the older group will be much more of the kingmaker in the kingmaker position in the European Parliament than it has uh, been previously. Now, we know that Alde historically, in the last two uh, parliaments, has been able to swing majorities within the parliament to the, towards the centre-right when it came to market regulation, economic policies, um, consumer issues, etc. But it will go uh, with the um, centre-left when it comes to environmental issues, um, social issues, uh, individual rights, human rights, etc. So this might mean that we have more volatility between the groups uh, uh, in, the, in the next European Parliament. And that will be important uh, in terms of, uh, first of all, uh, the lack of stable coalitions uh, could uh, make it more unpredictable for the governments to work with the parliament, but it could also end up making it uh, difficult for the parliament even to get to a compromise position that is workable on legislation. Um, and so we already will see this played out in the immediate aftermath of the European election results because within 28 hours there will be uh, decisions on the EU's uh, top jobs. This time around it is four jobs that has to be populated. Uh, the President of the European Council, the President of the European Commission, the President of the European Parliament, and then also the, the European Central Bank uh, needs a new head. And it is always a package agreement that uh, is adopted by the heads of governments. Um, but this time around, um, the balance between the parties and geographical balance is really, really tricky. So. I refrain from putting pictures up there and speculating about the names because, of course, there's a lot of gossip going around. There are names that stick for a longer time, but all of a sudden there will be new candidates appearing on the, um, uh, uh, in the discussions. So I, I, I don't want to say um, who I think uh, exactly ends up with which job. It is very unpredictable. Uh, process still, but what is different is that uh, the tone is quite hard from the current uh, president of the European Council in that the appointment has to happen by a qualified majority uh, vote, uh, and uh, usually it has been done by consensus uh, by most member states, but this time around he's saying, well, we just need the qualified majority. Uh, of course, um, it is uh, difficult to imagine that some of these posts would uh, be uh, appointed without the consent of some key member states, but uh, we, we will have uh, quite a long discussion and complicated discussion, and I think that if I should say one thing about the Spitzenkandidaten uh, process right now, it was great to see the discussion and the debate last night, but none of those people are likely to get the job. So I think that um, this will go back to the intergovernmental way of appointments in, uh, in the EU. There will be references to who came out as the winners or who has lost in the European Parliament elections, uh, but it will not define... Uh, individual appointments. It will define the package and the compromise as it is put together. 
Um, so, um, apart from the top jobs, what is also uh, uh, important here is that the European Parliament elections and with the party groups be, uh, going beyond just the composition within the European Parliament, uh, we can think of the power balance shifting also for the EU between the institutions. So in the European Council, where we have the heads of the governments, we also have a dominance by the EPP group, but it is not a, a huge dominance. It is only nine of the sitting governments, uh, heads of sitting governments that are from the EPP group, with ALDE having eight seats and the Social Democrats five. If we look at the current commission, it has had an overwhelming EPP presence, both in terms of the commissioners, but also at lower levels. Um, that is likely to shift, um, partly because there have been changes in government in the meantime, and there are likely to be more ahead. But all of this, again, means that we will see that the EPP, as a dominant force in European politics, is challenged across the institutions and across the political agenda for the EU. And if we look at what is on the agenda for the EU, it is, of course, uh, not a, a, an easy uh, play here. Um, the, 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 the EU members will have to deal with perhaps an unprecedented set of challenges that are both um, in terms of security, economic, uh, social, and policy, uh, as well as uh, climate change and all the rest. Um, it will also have to very soon uh, get serious about its preparations for its econ economic outlook and its uh, financial uh, planning with the multiannual budget. And then, of course, the small issue of Brexit will, will be uh, lingering in the background as, as the heads of uh, governments think about who is to lead the political agenda in each of these institutions. So... Um, the European Parliament elections has this very important um, uh, effect at the EU level, but also it will I mean, most likely set the tone for uh, politics happening in, at the national level in individual member states. Um, just to give an example of that, and I'm happy to, to discuss it further in the Q&A instead, but we, just this year, until the end of December, we will see general and local elections in Ireland, in Spain, in Greece, in Denmark, in Portugal, in Poland, in Latvia, and Romania. So it's not like the EU and individual countries within the EU can be complacent after what we see in the European Parliament elections. The results will um, have an effect on the uh, political and, and public debates in those countries. Uh, and then we are all, of course, keeping eyes still on, uh, on Germany as they prepare for Mar Merkel's departure and uh, what is happening in Macron, with Macron in, in France. So uh, a whole battery of, of uh, challenges for the governments and for the parties uh, in the institution and at the European level, but certainly also in their own domestic arena. All right, well, thank you very much to the three of you for fascinating presentations, full of information, full of insight. Uh, we do live in extraordinary times indeed. Um, 
many things uh, from the presentation stuck in my mind, but perhaps the first one uh, that uh, comes to mind is Matt's statement that uh, A, the Brexit party was founded in April, and B, that it is likely to emerge as the winner, in some sense, not necessarily given getting the largest number of votes um, in the election. Uh, it is not often that uh, you get speed, you know, this kind of speed in political change. Uh, so uh, lots of fun things uh, going on, some, some fun and worrisome at the same time, I suppose. I'm going to use the chairman's privilege and do one round of questions, and then we will open it up for, for a Q&A. And um, let me just take those questions or ask the questions in exactly the same order as... Uh, the panelists spoke. Um, the true Sarah's pointed out that uh, perhaps the big source of uncertainty is how many people will vote. So I want to um, start from that and ask Matthew, um, you've written very eloquently about the disenchantment of many people in the UK with politics and with you know the standard parties and political and, uh, uh, and uh, economic sort of conventional approaches. And I'm wondering how you, we go from that diagnostic to predictions about how many people will vote. Because I imagine sort of two possible conjectures, and I, I, I'm hoping you will tell me which one is right and which one is wrong. One is Britons are so fed up with conventional parties and politics that they will simply stay home. Or I could imagine that Britons are so fed up with conventional parties and politics that they want Brexit, and therefore they will go vote for the Brexit party. So from uh, this frustration and exhaustion of voters, one could conclude A, high turnout, B, low turnout. Which one is it? Mm. <clears throat> um, good question. So... I was thinking about that recently uh, because Sidney Verber, who was a very famous social scientist, uh, some of you will know, passed away recently. Uh, one of my favorite books was The Civic Culture by Sidney Verber and Gabriel Armand. And they were writing about Britain in the 50s and the 60s, and their argument was that Britain was the quintessential civic culture, mainly because its citizens participated and were engaged. Um, they were also trusting of one another and they were deferential to institutions and to authority. And I was rereading that book uh, a couple of weeks ago um, for a piece uh, that I wrote in The New Statesman and thinking about how Britain has changed since then, and this is my long, winding way of getting to your question, which is that uh, Verber and Armand argued that the quintessential British citizen in the 1960s was somebody who was basically sceptical about politics, but happy with uh, the institutions um, and was generally positive about how the state was uh, treating them and crucially felt that participating made a difference. And I think today, next week, what we will see is a different typical citizen. I think the citizen that does turn out next week will be uh, much less deferential to authority, much more open to political outsiders, um, trusting of their fellow citizens, but much less trusting of key political institutions, um, very disillusioned uh, and very fed up. Uh, and I think that uh, those who do turn up will be uh, the impassioned um, 
uh, Remainers uh, and Leavers who feel that this is effectively a proxy battle in the broader Brexit referendum. Um, but it will be also, I think, my instinct is surprisingly high, and within the context of EP elections, I think above 30%. And, and, and to me, that's a positive sign. People voted in the UK last time around? What's here? 35? 34%. I'm looking at some, 34, 35. Um, and in a way, that's a good thing, because let's not forget, you know, Peter Mayer's big kind of thesis was that elites and citizens would gradually withdraw from politics and turn away from one another. Now, I view the UK, however worried I am about where the UK is. I actually am quite bullish about UK democracy because what we are seeing with the referendum and with the 2017 election is actually quite high levels of turnout and engagement. So that aspect of the civic culture, I think, lives on. And the Brexit party, like it or loathe it, is part of that civic culture in the same way that the Countryside Alliance and the People's Vote Marching in London is part of that classic British civic culture. We don't do riots, but we do participate and we do engage politely. That's what we do. Um, and I think that's what I'm interested to see next week, which is, you know, people participating. My worry is, well, what happens if Brexit is still then not delivered and then you enter into, I think, it tips us away from Armand and Verba and towards Peter Mayer. And that's where I think we will start to see people not protesting and letting their expressions be known through the Brexit party and other vehicles, but actually just withdrawing from democracy. And that, I think, is the broader battle playing out. But if it was a bit about one-third last time, I guess your best guess is that it will be something in that order of magnitude. Are you just looking for a statistic, then? No, 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 no. Okay, so I, was I, I was not just looking for a statistic. 35%, I'm, I'm, I would say. Okay. I would say pretty consistent with 2014. No, I'm, I'm an economist, so I am a slave to numbers. But, um, you know... Just trying to get a sense of whether it'll be higher or lower, or more or less in the ballpark of what we've had recently. You're, I guess the summary is more or less what we've had before. So even though we've got lots of political change of all kinds, the number of people going to the polls uh, will not change a great deal. Let me turn to this Sarah here on, on my left. Um, Sarah, several times when you were speaking, you described the possible outcome using two words in close succession. You said we're going to see um, voting patterns and then a European Parliament, which is both fragmented and polarized. And it seems to me that um, those two things could go together, but need not go together. And if I look at the projections that both Sarah's showed, uh, yes, fragmentation is certainly the name of the game. You know, you go, you move from two big blocks or, you know, two big blocks plus the liberals to a bunch of uh, sort of mid-sized to little blocks. But, and this is my question, it is not evidence that you see polarization, at least not along the ideological spectrum. You know, the liberals that are reconfigured, you know, traditional liberals plus Macron and plus Ciudadanos from Spain uh, are getting over 100 seats. Uh, they're not exactly, you know, in the... In the in the, uh, in the extremes, the Greens, I wouldn't think of the Greens in most countries as being particularly extreme, they do fairly well. So it is clearly fragmentation. Is it also polarization? Uh, or can we be, uh, at least from my humble point of view, can we sleep well that Europeans have not gone crazy and extremist? In terms, and I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a great question, and of course, I mean, I think you rightly say that I think fragmentation is certainly the story we, we can be pretty certain on. But I think there's also 
a rising polarization, but it's not necessarily the left-right economic polarization uh, that we were used to from the sort of 50s, 60s, and 70s, where the sort of which we're actually in a way probably still seeing now, or seeing a reemergence of in the UK with Corbyn versus whoever is going to right. take over from um, Theresa May. Um, now, the kind of polarization that is really increasingly salient uh, in the EU 27 is one on a sort of um, on a new kind of dimension, um, which is also um, something um, Matt has written a lot on, which is a dimension on uh, between the kind of open cosmopolitan on the one hand, the sort of socially progressive, and on the other hand, the sort of national populists. Um, and that is a polar, and, and, and on that spectrum, the Greens and the radical right are really on opposite poles. And, and that's also what we see. And also, in a sense, the liberals, even though they are economic policies of, are centrist and, and even centre-right, as, as Sarah was pointing out, in that poll, they're quite, uh, you know, in a sense, they, they're on the opposite pole of a kind of a, an Auburn or Salvini. And so th that's the sort of polarisation that's both becoming much more salient, but also where which is creating some of the fragmentation in European politics because if we look at the party systems in Europe, they were very much created out of a left-right uh, uh, pattern and, and so you could have this sort of unidimensionality. Of course, it's not that simple. But because this second dimension, a lot of it has to do with immigration, but not just immigration, and, and we tend to focus a lot on the right-wing side of it. We tend to focus a lot on the, on the radical right-wing populist. But of course, it's also then there's a backlash, a sort of a counterinsurgency of, of green parties, of liberal parties, and we see it now in Germany. If you look at the German polls, a lot of the British media love to focus on the AfD, and they're important, but the Greens are polling even better. Uh, and that's also fascinating. So, so um, I think there is both a fragmentation and a polarization if we go beyond the sort of standard economic left-right and think more about the sort of cultural value politics. I think we are seeing both. That's a fascinating, fascinating answer. Of course, once you've got sort of a two-by-two two matrix and four possible boxes, it's not clear what polarization means, right? Is it diagonal, you know? Um, um, but clearly, it is... Political sciences yeah. can deal with two dimensions. Okay. I know economists, it gets uh, okay. like too complicated okay. Okay. for your models. I was asking for that. I could see it coming. <laughs> okay. I plead guilty to that. Let's move on to, to the other, Sarah. Um, one very striking fact from all those projections, Sarah, is that uh, putting aside all the bits and pieces that I was asking Sarah Hoboat about, the one indisputable fact... Uh, if the projections are roughly right, is the decline of the traditional center-right, center-left blocks. And, of course, this is not something that began yesterday. It's not something that is going to culminate tomorrow. The, the decline has been around for a while, and there's, of course, an ample academic literature on why this is happening. But I'd like to speculate a little bit on, on, on what happens next. Uh, if I were sitting uh, sort of at the, at the driver's seat of you know, either the Social Democrats or, 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 or the Conservatives, you know, whatever the individual country labels may be, I'd be asking, you know, how do we stem the decline? Uh, and maybe some countries are showing that it can be done. If you look at the socialists in Spain recently, uh, they surprised everybody by doing very, very well. I think they even surprised themselves by doing very, very well. So perhaps the decline is not entirely sort of irreversible. What, what hints would you give uh, to those political strategies? Where should, should they be going or what should they be thinking about in order to stem that decline? I think a lot of this will depend on what happens around us, what happens in the world. I mean, of course, a defining um, 
factor for what Europe will be in the next five years is whatever the U.S. decides to do. Uh, if we are going to end up with a real trade war, then Europe can come together. Uh, if uh, There might be differences about the kind of standards that we, we want to have, but there will be a uh, common interest that will bring us together. The same thing is the case when it comes to uh, other global politics or pressures from our neighborhoods, uh, from Russia, uh, on energy policy, etc., uh, immigration flows, depending on what happens with that. All of that, I'm sure, will be uh, defining Europe and the unity or not of Europe. But it is clear that um, within Europe, we have very different views on how to tackle these enormous questions, uh, but it is only once we see that these um, challenges become, if they become severe, uh, that um, we will see the unity. If there is uh, room for differences, uh, certainly those differences will also be, be, be visible, uh, I, I, I can imagine. But, you know, of course, um, internally, uh, we've had the, the, the sort of big commitments and the political uh, grandstand uh, f uh, and renewal of the German-French leadership in Europe uh, with uh, Macron, of course, taking a prominent uh, uh, position, but Merkel also really showing that you know, Europe needs to move forward. But then when it comes to actual policies, uh, what, what is going to happen? We, we don't know because the differences are really stark. Uh, Eurozone uh, uh, differences and opinions about uh, uh, immigration. So I, I think that you know, a lot will be defined by the world we live in, uh, but certainly the differences between the, the governments that are currently in place and the ones that might come in, uh, uh, yeah, we, we have to wait and see. I am on record having said once that uh, Trump is good for the LSE because we get lots of international students who would otherwise go to the U.S. They might rather come to Britain. You're saying now that Trump is good for the European Union because only if he fights with China or bombs Iran, Europeans can come together. Um, sounds both right and depressing. Um, yes. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know if we want to make that big sacrifice in order for Europe to come together. But. All right. Uh, that was a, a really fun and good set of questions. Uh, uh, of insights, and let's uh, take it to the floor there. Gentleman in the blue shirt. So, uh, everybody has a blue shirt. Uh, <laughs> that blue shirt. <laughs> so, so it's a bit of a, a, an anorak question, but I'll ask anyway. Um, with the, the reallocation of some of the, the British MEP seats, as originally planned to 14 of the other countries, um, in Ireland, using the single transferable voting system, Leo Bradker at one stage has suggested handing two ballot papers to each. Uh, each person going into the voting booth, one with the extra seats, one without. I think he's now changed his mind and just going to give one ballot paper to each uh, constituent. I just wondered what's happening in the other 13 countries. Do you know what's... Uh, are they running two uh, voting systems or uh, what's going on? I mean, it's a particular problem in, uh, in Ireland uh, because of the STV. In other countries, they're just basically keeping one reserve. But the, but the STV system just presents a particular problem. But basically everyone will have, the countries where they have had allocated seat will just keep a sort of list of in case or when or if Britain leaves, they will then become MEPs. 
but it's a very particular and peculiar situation, all of this, certainly. <laughs> we'll go to this side. Over there, yes. Thank you for the presentations. Um, in my humble perception, people don't really care about the European Union. Will that ever change? And if so, what will cause this change? For those of us who are non-Europeans, it looks like a pretty good deal to be a European, but somehow Europeans don't seem to feel that way. <laughs> hmm? Shall we take a few? Okay. Um, so uh, I'm being, I'm being, uh, it is being suggested that maybe we should take a, a few and then uh, go back to the palace. So why don't we do that? So the young man here in the front row, uh, nearly. Um. Hi. Uh, thank you for having this panel. Uh, my question is, um, what were your thoughts of the success of the Spitzkandidaten system in addressing concerns of democratic illegitimacy or democratic deficit within the EU? And do you see this improvised method of elect electing the council's president, the commission president, lasting into the future with future European elections? Thank you. Discuss. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll go to the back. The gentleman has had his hand up for quite a while. Um, feel strongly about the question he's going to ask. Yeah, um, thank you. Uh, it really follows on in many ways from the gentleman just now. I've worked in, as a subcontractor for European Commission programs. I have seen the dark side of the European Commission, and I might add frequently um, senior German behavior or German, senior Germans, and really disgraceful behavior. So my, my question is, on the point about perhaps a new, uh, no grand coalition or a new grand coalition, um, who would be the likely allies or cooperators in a sort of revamped grand coalition system? And in relation to specific, the gentleman's point about the commission president, um, who is like, what's the likely impact of the influence of Martin Selmayer? Uh, is this all likely to increase his influence? Because I, I have seen it's, the issue is always the people who stay behind and therefore provide the continuity often have a lot of de facto influence behind the scenes. Thank you. Okay, three questions, three speakers would like to uh, tackle some of those. I mean, given that for my sins, I've written several articles on the Spitzen candidate, and I can take that one. <laughs> um, so, in a sense, it was seen as a bit of a coup, going back to 2014, that, um, that Parliament got through with... So, so the Spitzen candidate originates in a change in the Lisbon Treaty that said the Council should take into account the outcome of the European Parliament election when nominating um, the Council presidency. And at the time, the council thought, yeah, well, that means we still get to decide. And the parliament pushed very hard for saying, no, that means that whoever comes top, um, whoever is the lead candidate or the Spitzen candidate for the biggest group will, in fact, then be the commission president. And if you look historically at the parliament, at parliament, the one thing the European Parliament has been incredibly successful at doing is expanding its own power. And it's really been a sort of common agenda of the, pro, of the big groups that they have been able to, for each treaty revision, get more power on the basis of saying this is democratic legitimacy. 
And there were good reasons for having Spitzenkandidaten procedures. One was that, you know, turnout was declining, and this was a way of really sort of personalizing the European Union. It was also a way of making it clear what we voted for, because uh, the, the thing that, that, that I said is people was like, oh, this is free vote because we don't have no idea what it really means. Well, if all of a sudden you knew you vote for the Christian Democrats in Germany, you get Juncker, he then has a particular electoral mandate, you can then go next time and say, are you happy with that or do you want the Social Democrats instead? You create sort of real federal politics and all of a sudden these European Parliament elections matter. So, so that was the idea, and, and I think some were surprised that they were successful in, in actually getting their candidate through. And I think some of us thought, well, if that worked in 2014, that in a sense would set a precedent, so it shouldn't matter even more in 2019. Now, as Sarah has already uh, uh, said, that has not been the case, and one of the reasons for that is, of course, that uh, Macron is not keen at all uh, on the Spitzenkandidaten procedure. Another reason is I think they've also chosen candidates who are not necessarily the one who kind of can capture the imagination of, of, of most voters. So, so the process now... That's very politely. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the process now is, you know, it would always sort of, it was always based on an idea of democratic legitimacy, and that's really what worked last time. But if voters don't care, if the candidates, if they don't know the candidate, if it's not a big part of the campaign, if the national parties don't pick it up, then that legitimacy, that argument with the council is not going to work. And if the council is always predisposed to not like it, which of course they are, because why would they like it? So if it fails now, it's going to be hard next time. And your question was sort of like, what's going to happen? I mean, if it's not going to work this time, it has to sort of become institutionalized, so to speak. Um, then, then it doesn't have much of a future, even though I think if Simon Hicks had been there, mm -hmm. he would have said, you know, that he would exactly, this was his blueprint, and it was meant mm -hmm. to work beautifully. But then politics comes in the way of political science. Mm. Well, the irony is also that it might not be the council that stops this process necessarily. It could stop, be stopped by the European Parliament itself, because um, the uh, lead candidate from the EPP group uh, is not popular and will not have a majority when his approval after having, if the council and the heads of governments were to agree that it had to be, that the EPP candidate was the right one, then it would go back to the European Parliament for the vote. And at that point, there's not a majority in the European Parliament. So the, 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 the Parliament's own candidate might not actually be approved by the other groups. The Greens will not agree to it, and Macron's people in the older group would not agree to it, so the EPP cannot uh, build a majority in favor of Weber, which is why I think that this process is, has been interesting. I think it's been um, uh, a, a big expression of what is at stake in terms of the policies and the priorities for the EU going forward, but I don't think that this will necessarily um, manifest itself to, to now be the way that the appointment is made. And who's going to lead the central bank? Well, many uh, will say that. I have a couple so, of friends in the running. I, uh, you I'd do? Like oh, okay. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, so as I, as I said before, this is a package deal, and there are a number of considerations that 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 are brought into this. There are uh, there has to be a balance between the main party groups. There has to be a representation, um, a geographical representation. Uh, there has to be a gender balance. No, one woman. 
Yeah, uh-huh. it, not balance. Okay, there has to be a representative uh, who is not male, um, and 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 uh, uh, and then the the packets will get at add, add-ons. There will be also um, discussions of the high representative, uh, so the foreign minister for for the European Commission. There will be other important posts that might be brought in to compensate the ones that didn't get the the the, the top jobs. Um, but there are some clear front runners for a, a number of the of the positions. But at the moment, as the discussions are going, the EPP is overrepresented. They cannot get all of this, and um, there are not enough women uh, in play. Uh, and there's also been uh, concerns about the geographical representation. So I think that um, even with the ones that were early on like seen as the likely um, winners uh, you know to give an example voter was uh, often referred to the, uh, from the Netherlands to to get the council presidency now a lot of people are backtracking and the same has happened for, for several of the other names so you know it's still all up for for, for grabs really Matt, you want to add something, or shall we go back to the voters? Well, there was one question over here about support for the EU, and do people feel right, that, right. Uh, that, that, that you know, they express support for the European Union? And I think we've seen two interesting things happen since Britain voted for Brexit. One is that, and I certainly argue this, that the fundamentals for the European Union, if you're an optimist, look pretty good, that support for the EU in Many other EU member states since the 2016 referendum has increased, as has support for the euro single currency. There are a few concerns around Italy, Greece less so, but if I was just looking at the fundamentals, I would think, actually, it's a pretty positive story, despite a very tumultuous and chaotic external environment. Um, But the pessimist in me would say that what will happen next week will reflect the EU's continuing uh, inability to navigate not just one but multiple crises on many fronts. And I'm more pessimistic about where the EU is, and I think probably Sara um, in the sense that I'll go off piste as a political scientist. I think spiritually uh, the EU is lost. I think the looming and growing trade war between the U.S. and China and the shifting international relations picture has left the EU not really knowing where it fits in, not really knowing how to carve out a role uh, and struggling to find a unity to do so. And I think if you look in crude terms at the liberal versus conservative conception of the European Union, there are, I would argue, irreconcilable conflicts between, for example, the Hungarian vision, the Polish vision, the Macron vision, the Salvini vision, that we still don't have an answer to. And I think there are some entrenched divides on the economic axis between, crudely put, north and south, that we still don't have a sufficient answer to. And the inability of Macron to deliver on his reform agenda, both domestically and externally at the EU level, I think has underlined that scepticism for me. And I think as a, somebody increasingly interested in economics, you know, if you look at the longer-term challenges facing the EU, which hopefully will begin to get a debate going at these elections and their aftermath about, Europe is ageing. 
Europe is not productive enough. The forecasts for the economic direction are pretty bleak over the next three to five years. And if you work, as I do, on the assumption that political, economic, and social instability in northern Africa will accelerate over the next few years, then the EU is really going to have to radically rethink how it's operating uh, and how it can get that unity, that integration, that vision, that sort of spiritual sense of we know what we are and where we're going, then I think the EU is actually going to have a difficult 10 years ahead, irrespective of actually those fundamentals. You know, I don't think other countries are going to vote to leave, but I think the EU now is going to find itself grappling to carve out this space as a unified, productive, forward-looking bloc. There's a classic British view uh, of the uh, European yeah. Union, perhaps, but we can debate that. I was at a talk recently by Gillian Tett, the FT correspondent, who would have agreed with Matt. She said, the problem with Europe is in the euro notes. Most countries have notes in which you have people on them. You know, countries need heroes. Uh, the European Union has buildings on them, and they have buildings that don't exist, actually, because they couldn't agree on actual buildings. Um, Gillian Ted concluded, you know, uh, a continent with no heroes and with the wrong notes cannot survive. Well, got an extreme version of the, of the British view, I suppose. I think, I think I have to take issue with this. All because, right, good. You know, I was hoping for that. I, th I think <laughs> that this is the British view. Like, yeah. I think that, you know, their common ground, their common interest... Um, there's a shared history. There's a whole lot of things going on. And, of course, you know, the politics, they change. There's a, there are many different uh, dynamics going on, on all at the same time at the moment. But as I said before, a lot will be defined in what happens around us as well as within the, the boundaries or the territorial um, borders uh, for the EU. But I think if we are to be a bit philosophical, you know, we, time and again, we see also the opposite. So I'd, I am not sure we should take evidence to conclude that we cannot unite, you know, the generations that uh, have enjoyed the free movement. And, you know, I'm of a generation that enjoyed free movement all of a sudden, seeing that they're that cannot be taken for granted. I think that people react to that in Europe. You know, there are things that, that, that also will, will uh, result from, from these crises on multiple fronts. So um, that's, that's in many ways maybe not going to unite Europe um, in terms of identity and, and, and all the other issues that people frequently refer to. But in which country have we ever needed to have a common identity. I mean, most of our European countries don't have common identities. Some of them don't even speak the same language. So let's stop all of this for a moment and then actually say, well, let's collaborate. Let's uh, have our borders open with the rules in place that we need for trade, free movement, etc. And then let's deal with the real world. Of course, if you ask people outside this corner of the planet, by far the most admired political grouping in the planet is not the United States or China or India, it is the European Union. Yeah. But um, also, so there must be something in there, right? But also when we saw the, the fire in Notre Dame, that was a European reaction, and that was a building. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, a real building. <laughs> good one, all right. That's a good European comeback. Okay, let's go back to voters. We're talking about gender balance. All the hands up are men's hands, and I'm not going to take another man's question. Uh, where am I going, Blanda? There we go. All right. Thank you very much. Floor is yours. Uh, thank you. Um, 
Leonardo da Vinci, Cervantes, Shakespeare, I could go on and on. They're all part of our common European heritage, and they could all be on the banknotes. But that isn't really what I wanted to say. I wanted to address a question to Professor Goodwin. Thank you for that very interesting analysis. Um, it's true that Farage will probably win. He's getting tons of publicity, 30%. But if you put together uh, Lib Dems, uh, Tiggers, Chuckers, call them whatever you want, Greens, arguably there is an equal block of pro-European parties, and indeed, following on from, from this uh, gentleman's point, more pro-European sentiment than I've ever seen in this country in my lifetime as a result of the referendum. Now, they won that second referendum. They've been very vocal. But have they sort of won in perpetuity on, on the result of a non-binding referendum and a lot of scared politicians uh, and media in hoc to Nigel Farage? We'll take a couple more questions before we go back to the panelists. The gentleman in the very back. Thanks very much. Um, question for Matthew Goodwin first. Um, is, there any, is there any evidence of what we commonly see, which is people not telling the truth on opinion polls? To is, is there any how how reliable do you think they are at the moment? I just kind of want to press you a bit on that. I know you've already been asked about turnout, but is there anything on intention to vote or likelihood to vote stuff? Just want to, if you've got any more on that, that'd be very helpful. And to the other two um, panelists, in, in I'm very interested to hear that the the blocking or the grand coalition might drop below 50%. It, it really matters in the UK if you do that. And I'm just wondering how much it matters in, in the European Parliament and what, what effect it would have. Um, would, it, would it create an opportunity for blocking, popular, blocking um, action by you know, the populist parties if it does drop below 50%? I just don't know. I'm just curious if you could, if you could expand on that a little bit. Thank you. One more question. Yes, back there. Do you think that uh, the UK MEPs elected next week will take their seats? Hmm. <laughs> Permanently or otherwise? Right. Short, sweet, and to the point. Back to the panelists. Why don't we begin with that last question, which can have a nice, pithy answer. That's an elegant way of asking the impossible question of <laughs> when or uh -huh. whether Brexit will happen, isn't it? I mean, the thing is, they will take their seats in September. Would Britain have left by then? Probably not, but maybe. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, I think I'd be a lot richer uh, than I am if I knew exactly. I frankly don't think anyone can give you that. So I think if we're going to crash out, it's more likely it'll be on the 1st of November, by which case they, they will have taken a seat. Of course, if there has been a deal, they might not be taking their seats. But, I mean, I just, I think we basically, we're in exactly the same place we were before we were originally meant to leave, which is we're still in a deadlock between whether or not there's going to be an agreement on the deal, which I don't think there will be in the first week of June when it's going back to Parliament. And then what happens? Then either, and this is where the European Parliament elections are important, either enough MPs change their mind and say, okay, maybe the will of the people is that we crash out and leave without a deal, or they say, we simply cannot come to some kind of agreement, so we must, we must put it back to the people maybe with the deal or some kind of confirmatory public vote. Or indeed, there is enough, is, there is some kind of softer Brexit that Matt alluded to. But it's not a different situation, but I think where the European Parliament elections come in and are important is 
Not so much because of the MEPs they sent to to Brussels, who most likely, I guess, are not going to sit there for a full term, but because of the signal it sends about the strength of public opinion, and that also goes back to the ladies' question, is that's not just about seats, because, yes, the Brexit Party might well, I think, is right, win a plurality of seats, but they won't win a majority of seats. I think no one is really thinking that's likely. And then what will be the narrative? And in terms of the balance of the bloc, I think a lot of that will be what's the narrative about the Labour Party, I mean, we saw a poll out today. Voters certainly have no idea where Labour stands on Brexit. So, so the Remainers will say, oh, yeah, that's a really clearly a Remain majority. And Leavers will say, well, that's clearly that's a Brexit party, so it's a Leave majority because we'll have these sort of three blocks, yeah? So anyway, I'm not answering your question, but, but I think it is just impossible right now. And we could come very close to that date. And then, and Sarah can speculate on that, once we get to that date, I don't think it's certain that, that the EU is just endlessly going to say, okay, fine, you can have some more time, because she had a whole list of all the other things that the EU needs to deal with. Imagine a difficult UK position in budget negotiations, having to pay to the EU budget and take part in planning for the multiannual uh, financial framework. Not knowing when you're leaving is a, is a difficult position for the government, but it's also difficult for the EU uh, side. Yeah. Um, so I think one point, though, that we know about the MEPs uh, is that they will be in an awkward position if they are going to be in the European uh, Parliament. Um, and what we've seen so far is that... Um, uh, the ones that uh, are not within the main parties, they have not taken part in any policy discussions or in any policy work. They've not voted. They've actually been absent for most uh, uh, votes. Um, and that the MEPs who are within the main party groups, they have followed party line completely. Um, in the European Council, the same thing. The, the British representatives have not voted against the majority or spoken up on issues since the referendum, um, which is very unlike British politics in the EU. Uh, so already here, you know, they are present, they will count, and they have a say on all legislation going through, but whether there's an influence is, uh, is, is I doubt it. Um, yeah, and now I forgot what the other point was that I was going to make, so over to you, Matt. <laughs> so on the, uh, the question about the Remain-Leave split, um, I think one of the interesting questions, you know, just to ask is why is uh, Farage um, back in British politics? Um, well, he's back because we haven't delivered Brexit. I mean, Britain is, is offering the world a masterclass in how not to deal with populism. Um, you know, it, 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 it is quite remarkable... Uh, to me, to see uh, the current landscape, I mean, I've been looking at you know, UKIP, Euroscepticism, I mean, I've known Farage since 2012, and yet I genuinely think that he and the movement he represents probably have never been stronger because of our collective inability to deal with this issue that was always destined to deliver a political crisis. I mean, when you have a moment that Brexit was, which was the first moment in our national history when a majority of people outside of Parliament asked for something that a majority of people inside Parliament did not agree with. So it was always destined to, to bring us to a constitutional political crisis. But what I have found especially striking in the nearly three years since that referendum 
has been the total lack of self-reflection among pro-Remain movements and a complete inability to rethink the strategy for engaging with the electorate and for engaging in how to beat somebody like Farage. I mean, it is a pretty damning indictment of British politics that he is, by a mile, the best politician that we have in British politics, in terms of his instincts, in terms of his ideas, in terms of his language, right? Now, that's, an un that's a controversial thing to say, right? I understand that. But we have a political, I don't like the term political class, but we have a generation of MPs who really are struggling to communicate and connect with the electorate at large. Now, why on earth some of the Remain parties are not standing on a common platform? I don't know. Why Change UK didn't call itself the Remain party I don't know why we are still reducing uh, arguments to transactional economic-only narratives about transactional costs and benefits when we know that made very little difference overall uh, in 2016. I don't know. And I think the deeper point about where Britain is at the moment is there's a complete lack of imagination. People have become so consumed by the, the – they've gone into these ideological cul-de-sacs and they've gone for the comfort blankets, whether it's, it's all about Cambridge Analytica or it's all about shady Facebook campaigns, that we've really lost sight of uh, the deeper reasons why we're here. Uh, and those deeper reasons are actually – they've been mapped by social scientists quite well. We've got rising – levels of inequality, we've got uh, growing uh, and widening divides between uh, workers uh, and, and the middle class, we've got growing geographical and regional inequalities between London uh, and small towns and coastal Britain, uh, and we've got lots of areas that have had a consistent uh, lack of inward uh, investment. So, I mean, I, I, don't, I struggle, especially when I see the inequality report a couple of days ago by the IFS, I mean, that should have been the debate that we've had, that we were having over the last two years, which is actually how to fix Britain, how to deal with the underlying grievances. Instead, we sort of descended into this, at times, utterly bizarre debate that is effectively still about what London wants and about what the, the middle-class professionals want and can we get back into the EU. And I think it's, historians won't judge us well, actually, in terms of how we've responded to the referendum, and that's my personal sort of view. I think we could have done much better, and hopefully the European election campaign provides that psychological shock that gives those parties cause to think, maybe we can do this differently. Maybe, that, you know, maybe we need an alliance. Maybe we need to change the narrative. And maybe we need to do what Gordon Brown suggested, have a national commission on the grievances that led people to vote for Brexit. We have about five minutes um, and a few hands... Um Still up. We're going to go to the, to the uh, upper section, which so far has not had a chance to speak up. So let's begin uh, with the red shirt there. Yes. Um, I'm just wondering, uh, with the European elections, will it be the death knell uh, for the Tory party and the rise of a new sort of socially conservative, genuinely socially conservative party? Um, will it be the end for them this time? Finally. Uh. <laughs> that was asked with particular relish, I thought. <laughs> yes, the uh, lady in the green, please. 
Thank you. Uh, just more about the trade policy because you said it's on top of the agenda. And so I'm wondering how the change of the dynamics in the European Parliament will going to change how they negotiate with U.S. I don't know whether you're talking about U.S. in the trade war or you're talking about uh, the trade between U.S. and China, how are you going to behave? So we just want to understand your view. Thank you. One last hand up there. Yes, uh, in the front row. Um, thank you for the short questions. And we will get some short answers so that we can all go At, home. I think you hit the nail on the head. I think it, the whole issue of Brexit, in my opinion, and maybe some of this, you know, Salvini in, in, in Italy and, you know, Gilets jaunes in France, is basically, basically the rise of populism. Uh, what can we do actually to sort of stop that rise in populism and, um, you know, as a result of the global financial crisis perhaps, or maybe that frustration that people have these days that they're being marginalized, what can we do to sort of make the change is that instead of that change happening upon us, either through a revolution or maybe have left-wing governments like the, the chance of having Corbynism in the UK, whereby taxes will be imposed on that top one to two percent, how can we pro be proactive about it and to stop it from actually further taking damage on the, on the, on the country and as well as the continent? How to stop populism? I wish we had two hours to discuss that, but we only have two minutes. Um, so let me revert back to the panelists. Would like to address any of those questions, any or all, briefly? I can do a, a quick uh, reply to the one on trade. Um, so the European Parliament has successfully taken a position uh, and amended uh, the EU's position through its um, legislative activities, for example, on the TTIP uh, agreement with the US. So the European Parliament plays a real role in trade agreements. It, it, it can um, amend and make changes and influence uh, policies, and therefore the makeup of the next European Parliament will matter for that. Uh, and it is likely that we will see a European Parliament that is not um, as uh, liberal as it has been previously, and you might say that, well, it was not all that liberal previously even, but we could, I could imagine there would be more regulation coming in through the European Parliament, not necessarily from the governments in the Council, but that it is the European Parliament that becomes more restrictive. And of course the EU also, not just from the European Parliament, but also the governments, they need to take a stand on what is going on in global affairs in general, but certainly uh, pressingly on, on, on the trade situation and the, and the positions of U.S. and China. So it is both with, with respect to um, uh, in, uh, trade between the EU and the, and the U.S. and, and, and other uh, countries. Uh, the, with China, certainly, there has been uh, already very important debates within the European Parliament. Uh, but um, but it's, uh, it is also of like more globally looking at what 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 role and position will will the EU take uh, at the world stage. Uh, so, okay, so um, the, the last time I made a prediction about politics, I ended up eating a book on television. Um, so, I'll, but I'll make one tonight. Your own or someone else's? My own. I'll, I'll make one tonight. Um, <laughs> If the Conservative Party does not deliver Brexit, the Conservative Party will not survive in its current form. Okay? The reason I say that is because 72 to 75% of Conservative voters are very strongly pro-leave. 
the vast majority of those Conservative voters are very strongly pro-hard Brexit. Okay? So they don't want what you might call a super soft Mr. Whippy style Brexit. Okay? But I think the Conservative Party could just about get away with a soft Brexit. But if it doesn't deliver any Brexit at all, then I think we start to enter into the territory of Canada 1993, which, of course, is the famous example of a liberal conservative party effectively being taken over by a traditional socially conservative party under a first-past-the-post system. I don't think the Brexit party necessarily would be able to pull that off at a general election, but I think what you would start to see is growing deselections of conservative MPs, uh, conservative leadership candidates, as they're already doing, veering to a hard Brexit wing, uh, and the growing influence of the Eurosceptics over that political party, redefining it effectively. That could have catastrophic electoral consequences for the Conservatives. It would hasten Labour's dominance in London, the university towns, the South East. It would um, alienate uh, many uh, Conservative voters in, in seats that they really do need to uh, win back. Um, but we could be on the cusp of uh, actually quite a profound uh, change in, in British politics. And on, the, um, on the, the point about the opinion polls, I would defend my friends in, in the polling industry. I, I think I sat in this very hall, actually, before the referendum, with Brexit, with, with, uh, before the Brexit referendum, pointing out that the online polls were suggesting uh, a leave win. Uh, the polls were spot on with Jeremy Corbyn's rise. The state polls in the US were spot on with Trump. And, of course, the 2017 election wasn't a great uh, election for many of us, um, but we did have the YouGov uh, MRP modelling, which was uh, scarily accurate, in fact, telling me that sort of my seat where I teach Camp at Canterbury would go Labour for the first time ever, and indeed it did, and Kensington and Chelsea would go. So yeah, there are issues with, poll with, with, with some of the pollsters, but in general terms, um, you know, they've, they've, got a, they've, got a, they've had a pretty good run. Um, and just lastly, very lastly, uh, how to beat populism. Um, I mean, that's the million-dollar question. I'm happy to announce that uh, I have the answer in three words. <laughs> Buy my book. <laughs> Don't just read it. I want the royalties. Here you go. Sarah, have you got a book you'd like to peddle? <laughs> <laughs> It's your several. There's really nothing to add to that, is there? <laughs> All right. Uh, it is only three past eight. And unless... Um, you want to add something? Or um, disagree? Agree? All right. I hope you'll join me uh, in giving the panelists a big round of applause.